Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Hello, Allah, and welcome to the second hour of Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. You are about to meet a man who has an epic story to tell as he's lived amongst remote indigenous tribes all over the world, including the cannibals of Indonesia, New Guinea, Gabon, India, Ethiopia, Venezuela, and the Brazilian Amazon, amongst others. BAFTA award-winning filmmaker Bruce Parry has traveled the world. He has learned some of the most profound and life-changing lessons from them. I spoke to him at the Sharjah International Book Fair where he revealed to me the most surprising aspects of what life was like for humankind when society was still made up of nomadic hunters and gatherers. It's a journey that will surprise you and it is coming up next with me on Life Beats. Imagine a society where absolute equality exists or one where women hold the balance of power. In today's hyper-competitive and self-centered world, the idea is almost laughable. But according to award-winning documentary filmmaker, author and indigenous rights advocate Bruce Parry, some of the world's most remote tribes hold the secret to a more egalitarian way of living that vanished with the advent of modern societies. Parry has spent many years living amongst people that would often be labeled as primitive, but has discovered profound and surprising lessons that have forced him to question the way that first world countries live today. I started out by asking him how the idea of living amongst remote tribes as a family member came about. You've had an extraordinary life journey, done so many different things. Um, but obviously what you're most known for now is living amongst Indigenous people all over the world. How on earth did this start? I'd be very lucky. You know, what a, what a lucky journey I've had. You know, and it really has been uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I mean, like many things. I started out life as a marine, of all things, um, and then I got into expeditions at quite a young age. Used to lead science and conservation expeditions to Asia um, after leaving the Marines, and then I, 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 you know, cutting a very long story short, I ended up getting a a gig in television because I went off to climb a mountain in New Guinea over a millennium because I wanted to kind of escape the millennium madness and go to places people didn't even know what millennium was. And sure enough, went on this extraordinary expedition, took a friend and we filmed it and we came back and it just won loads of awards around the world, which was, we were really lucky. And then the BBC picked up me for some other stuff. And then a few years later, I then got that series Tribe, which kind of put me on the map, I guess. Yeah. That's the one that really kind of went viral around the world televisually. What was it about that first experience in Indonesian New Guinea that made you think, this is extraordinary, I need to keep doing this? Well, you know what? In the early days, I was just in it for the adventure. You know, I just wanted to have a life that was stimulating and fun and varied um, and that was kept me fit and active. And 
So I was just in it for that and also a bit of an ego trip of like climb the highest mountain and go to a place no one's seen and meet tribes that no one's met. And all of those things was like kind of part of my background, having been a Marine and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm a little bit of ashamed of it now looking back because it's definitely not my motivating drive anymore. But You seem so different now. Yeah, I've, I've had the great privilege of doing that a lot and meeting people a lot. And then, of course... What started out as just like all about me and adventure ended up being like so very different because you meet people who have a very different way of living, have a very different perception of reality, who are often struggling as a result of the way that we live our lives over here and all of these sorts of things, suddenly the pennies started dropping and it wasn't so easy to be frivolous anymore. You know, you've got to wake up and realize that we're all connected in this realm this world together and our actions have really in deep implications and and so that was the journey that then started with me it's like oh wow and also you know I went through a huge shift having started that life as a as a marine and very sort of like English type boarding school very institutionalized and then I go and live with a tribe who has a completely different set of values a completely different way of looking at the world and time and again I had to look at myself tell me about the contrast that you noticed and how it made you rethink things i've traveled before but in my earlier travels it was always very easy to maintain my own perspective because i wasn't really having to live with the other people i wasn't beholden to them and what i realized is when i started living in the family of the of the tribal group and i do this now with all of my travels i try and just listen and so when you're actually in the family and you're beholden to how they are doing things, you end up experiencing the, the differences. Whereas previously, uh, you know, it was more fleeting. I wasn't having to really go deep. You know, the methodology that we took for, for making these programs was for me to try and look at the world through their eyes. And, and of course, the more you do that, even if you feel that you've already got a view about something, even if you feel that you've got a sort of prejudice or a prejudgment on certain ways of being often when you actually listen to the person who's doing it very differently you realize wow actually i'm learning something here they've got a very real reason for doing that and they're a beautiful person just as as wholesome and as lovely as me but they're approaching something completely differently often in a way that perhaps i might have previously thought was was not very positive give me an example of that I mean, in the course of making the films, we looked at many things, including uh, certain aspects of the difference in relationships between gender and how that played out. Give me some scenes, some moments, some incidences where yeah, sure. you thought this is not at all. Well, you know, so like, so I live with people who eat human flesh. You know, so we would typecast that as cannibalism right. and have all sorts of imagery of people stirring pots and it doesn't sound great. And yet they were probably amongst the sweetest people I've ever met. And then you realize that actually there's many different ways. You know, just that one word has such an instant reaction. But actually people in our society will cut up a placenta and eat that. Is that cannibalism? You know, it's like all of these things. It's just the word itself has a huge weight. And then when you pick it away, there's possibly another aspect to that. Now in their particular group, yeah, I mean, it was still very hard to get your head around. They have a form of, of trial and retribution, if you will, that whereby if someone is considered to be a witch, then it's legitimate for their life to be taken and for them to be eaten, because that's the way that they deal with that particular type of sorcery. Now, it doesn't happen very often, 
but in its own sort of way, it is its own type of judicial system. And who am I coming in for a very short period of time to tell you you're right or wrong? How much does one have to look at oneself when, it, when someone is also trying to suggest that certain, something is right or wrong? I look at the society that I've come from, we're causing many more problems in the world today than that group of people living in the forest. Many, many, many more problems in the world according to my very morally superior society when clearly there was such hypocrisy from those people that often what happened was that those traits just became reinforced and actually became the last thing that they were holding on to just to show right. we, in the face of this horrendous hypocrisy from the dominant society we're holding on to this because who are you how dare you look at you look at your just go and look in the mirror and i saw that again and again and it doesn't mean to say that i still don't wish that the world didn't have certain traits within it i still feel that there that there is a maybe like a a more harmonious way that we could all be with each other we're in that sort of a way and in the way between men and women in the way between warfare and the way, all of these things yeah. I definitely feel if we all step back that there is a more harmonious way that we could find to be together but what it really struck me is that until we're willing to look at ourselves and acknowledge our own hypocrisies and our own distorted values it's very difficult for us to start judging others yeah tell me it's about some of your favorite places that you've visited and people that you've been amongst yeah, well, not great at favourites because, of course, they're all amazing. There's some things that I've definitely received that have been incredibly large lessons in life. Some of the groups that I went to live with uh, have strong rituals using plant medicines. Each time I did that, I came away with extraordinary gifts. Even though when you watch the programme on the BBC, it looks like terrible. It looks like I'm vomiting and like unwell and having to like soul search and, and all the rest of it. But the actual reality is that those have been some of the most healing and deep positive experiences of my entire life. So these are like some of the traditional medicines yeah. that they have? Absolutely, especially medicines that they use for healing the, the psyche. So we, we would consider them to be like subtly mind altering. In the forest, they have medicines for everything, like we have medicines for many things. So most of the medicines we have also came from plants. And they have, and a lot of those we learned because of our own ancestry and because of our own lineage and, and also from other places in the world. So these people are pharmacologists, you know, they know the plants and what they do. And it just so happens that they have all these different medicines for all these different things, but they also have medicines for the psyche and for depression. And for, well, don't we try to do that here as we well do, with like, Prozacs and all of but the, those our, kind of things? Our medicines tend to be almost like a slapping a plaster on it rather than getting to the root of it. And their medicines are much more about getting to the root of it. And they're hard. And you need someone who knows what they're doing, a real doctor practitioner, they call them shaman, to hold that space so that you can really be held as you go through this like often dark night of the souls in order to get to the root cause of why it is that you might be behaving such a way. Often what happens is you revisit that moment in your past when the trauma occurred and you're offered a, a way of reliving that as an older person. Rather than react to it, you can find a new neural pathway down to it and find another way of being. And often that's accompanied by the, a release of something, maybe a stored something that's inside you. That, and an opportunity for you to look at yourself and see the decisions you make and the type of behavior that you're holding and, and your relationship with each with people and nature. So humbling. So without question, they've been the most powerful things that I've done and learned. 
Tell me about some of the most profound lessons that you learned from True. indigenous tribes. So many lessons uh, and insights into humanity and society. The last group I lived with in Borneo, I went to group, live with a group of people called the Penan. I didn't even really want to go initially because I've been to Borneo many times. I've been to Malaysia. I couldn't believe that there was going to be a group in that, that forest that's so degraded that was going to be as insightful as everyone was offering. But when I went to meet them, they completely changed my life and made me realize that every other experience that I'd had and every other understanding that I thought that I had gained from all of my time with all these other groups, I had to reevaluate all of them in the light of having met this new group. And because it took me a long time to have the courage to say what it is I'm about to say, and it took me a long time to figure it out as well because it was invisible at first. But because I had been to visit so many other groups, I I could tell that there was something so profoundly different, but I didn't know what it was. It was just a feeling I had, that the way they were. It was like they had a different operating system. They were the same human beings, but like operating from a completely different system. And ultimately what that was, was that they were existing in a society that had almost completely eliminated any outward expression of competition. So much so that they have no hierarchy or leaders or shamans or anyone in their society at all. They're completely equal. There's and absolute equality. Absolute equality. Between absolute, everybody. And between everybody. I mean, Men, women, children. The whole thing. Kids as well. As soon as you can walk, you're an equal member of society. Unbelievable. And so the experience of being with them, now I'd read that they were egalitarian and stuff, but that the penny didn't drop until I was there with them. And it's this competition thing that was the big one. So that became a hugely profound experience for me because I, initially I just thought it was overly romantic. I couldn't really describe it. And there's all sorts of, you know, I, I ended up diving deeply into what that meant and what that, what that meant for me, what that meant for us all, what that meant for our understanding of our past. The understanding that I've gained that rarely comes out in pop science books and pop history books and stuff is that actually... When you go and meet any tribe who is still living before the advent of the Neolithic Revolution, sort of like the domestication of plants and animals for food, agriculture, yes. in the tropical belt, not in the, not in the Americas, not in the Amazon, because that happened much later, but only in Africa and Southeast Asia, any one of those groups who still live as nomadic hunter-gatherers all have the same things in common. And they all are existing in this way where they have no ownership, no leadership, everything's shared, uh, they're pacifistic, they're sort of anarchists, but are also the most peaceful people on the planet. And so these are relatively flamboyant statements I'm making here. And I don't say them lightly because I know how controversial that sounds. But I remember talking to the anthropologist, Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, who were in this film that I just made, um, saying when he said they're the most peaceful people on the planet, I remember saying to him, you can't say that. Yeah, how can you qualify that? He goes, Bruce, by every means by which we measure these things, as anthropologists now, we've been living with these groups of people now for decades. Time and again, these groups come out as the most peaceful people on the planet. Not only that, they are an indication because these last remnant groups give us an insight into how we were for 95% of our time on the planet as the human species. So they're, they're also relatively fragile. In the, 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 it's much easier when come, people come together on some strong leader to, to take or agriculture to destroy forests and whatever. So there are very few left and they're the ones who are hiding essentially in the last vestiges of forests that are left. 
because they're not in competition with their neighbor. It's like a, an overlapping way of being that spreads out, even today in the Congo, for hundreds of thousands of people throughout the Congo. It's very hard for us to imagine because I feel like our um, contemporary modern world is only getting more and more competitive every single yeah, day. Absolutely. And so day to day, what does that actually look like in practice? Every facet when I went to meet the Penan of how they were was completely different. It was it was almost invisible because like having no competition is almost like it's an invisible thing. They're right. just getting on with their daily lives. But like it was how they were being with each other that was so interesting to me. And the way they talk, it's not chippiness. It's not trying banter and trying to be above the other. It's all open-hearted expression of something else. It's not played out in the way that we do about who can be a little bit above each other in how we're chatting. Now I also went to visit another group who are the same, who are also egalitarian hunting, nomadic hunter-gatherers living in the Congo. And there you see a little bit more how it's played out. When I was with the Penan in Borneo, it was almost like they were all fastidiously sharing and wanting to be a part of this ongoing experience of feeding and nourishing each other. And that was their raison d'etre and it was extraordinary to be amongst. There's another group in Asia Feeding I haven't been to. and nourishing each other. Yeah. I just love the sound of that. There's another group I haven't been to, but I hear of in Asia that's similar uh, in Southeast Asia, who, who see any form of violence as a type of mental illness. But they've almost completely eradicated any type of violence at all. Obviously, they have violence in their hunting towards other species, but to each other, almost none at all. And then I went to this group in Africa who are similar in that they have uh, sharing and different understanding of, of ownership and no leaders. But there it was a lot more jostling. So you could see the play that is required in order to maintain the balance. And one of the biggest things that's very evident is the role of the women in coming together as a collective in the public space to maintain and hold in the very different quality of power that they have, which isn't for me to name, but they had a quality of power which was very different to the quality of power that the men as a group were holding and they rather than confronting that more competitive aggressive aspect that the men might have they had their own tools and methodologies which were playful and almost like a withdrawing of something that the men wanted their own way of doing things which was basically a, a counterbalance to when the men would get out of hand so there's a strong play between the men and the women but upheld extraordinarily by the women in solidarity in the public space. And then the other thing that was clear was that each person had understood the story, the narrative. So there was a strong narrative which wasn't held by a central organizing body like in communism where like we're going to look after the needs of everyone and we'll share but like no it was like none of that. It was everybody had a personal responsibility to play their role in maintaining the balance. So it was completely decentralized disseminated form and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people I'm not talking about little tribe I'm talking about this spreads out throughout the tropical belt and and has done for the majority of our time as humans this is what was so phenomenal for me to take on board and of course it's contested in areas but I genuinely I've got I've got no agenda here this is my I, I'm a very lucky guy that I've been to visit a lot of groups and this is my genuine genuine belief that this is the reality and as, as is becoming more accepted by anthropologists today. So they have a, a, a story that maintains this balance. So you ask, how does it play out on a daily basis? So I remember I was with the guys once running around and there we are 
like these strong, muscly African dudes in like what looked like a rugby scrum, running at me in the middle of them, running up and down, going <laughs> and like chugging and gruffing and like flexing muscles. Anyway, someone threw out a stick into the middle of us, and then half got one side of the stick, half got the other side, and of course, in almost every situation that I would find myself in back home, if a line comes between the group guys, we'd instantly step into like a tug of war situation. It's just we just can't help it. And and so sure enough, this stick got thrown into the middle of us and half grabbed one side, half grabbed the other, all facing each other. And it was so beautiful and so interesting. There was loads of flexing of muscle, loads of grunting and groaning and being male, but at no stage did it become us versus them. It was like lifted up and pulled down and it was joyful. It was harmonious. It was amazing. And like, it's a it's a really subtle and very simple example. But for me, it was so deep because it just was a, a bringing to the surface of something that I was feeling throughout the day, throughout my time there. And uh, I remember another time when I was uh, with the guys again and they pointed at a guy in the corner who just come into the into the sort of main center of the village and they said you see that guy over there he's the best hunter we all know he's the best hunter because like we hunt elephants yeah and he's the guy with a big wooden stake and he runs out first and stuffs it underneath and we all come in afterwards with our spears and axes but he's the guy everyone knows it but a couple of years ago he started showing off that he was the guy so we refused to go hunting with him and the woman refused to cook his food because we just don't want that wow and that is another little example of how they all know that if anyone gets down, you've got to bring them up. If anyone gets up, you've got to bring them down. So no one hoards more than anyone else. No one shows off more than anyone else. And people can try, but the rest of the group have these tools that they all hold on a daily basis to just ridicule or tease or torment or refuse somehow. What do you think we can learn from them? I mean, you've kind of alluded to it quite a lot with your stories there but what do you think we those who haven't been there haven't seen it what can we learn well i think some might say that it's impossible to go back to any such way of being and that may well be the case you know but for me what i've learned and what's helping me is the narrative it's understanding how amazing we are as a species and how we can be together if we choose to come together with a similar narrative and we know that narratives have been the thing that hold us, whether it's through religion, whether it's through nation statehood, whether it's through money, these are just narratives, they're just stories. They all have their origins and they may be origins from something very special, but the rest of us are just buying into the story. And if you look at some of these stories that have come back in time, if, if they make sense and if we believe in them, they can have profound shifts and it can happen relatively fast. You know, at the moment we're facing almost like a, a war of narratives, but well, we have been for a while, I guess. But like, what I found really compelling about this particular one is that this isn't like a new age theory. This is, my understanding is that this is a narrative that we held for the vast majority of our time on the planet. Like almost all of it, 95%, if it's shifted with agriculture and we left the tropical belt, and for good reason. I'm like, we've needed to expand and we've needed to do loads of things. But somewhere along the line, we've lost this understanding that we used to hold. And I think that if we all can accept that that is our past and it served us because we didn't trash the environment, we didn't, you know, we were able to maintain a steady way of being for a long, long period of time. And it may well be the only way that we can do it because at the moment we're in this rat race 
whereby we're all trying to get what our neighbors got. We all think that the person next to me has got more and he's going to make me. So that journey of expansion is clearly at the heart of it. Something's got to shift. There's not enough planets for us all to live the way that the first world nations live. It's just not enough materials. So something's got to shift. Maybe the only time in history that we've ever gone from hierarchy to egalitarianism probably happened 200,000 years ago. The particular group that I went to go and visit in Africa, they have a song and a dance that they say relates to the first moment. They have a song and a dance that they say relates to how they became human and how this came about. Well, you remember I talked earlier about qualities of power. Well, rather than confronting power, which is the way that we've been trying to do it before. Even like the most benign attempt, you know, even like the most well-meaning revolution is always seems to beget. It's not, it seems to just replace one power structure with another um, and centralize power and all the rest of it. So how did it happen originally? Well, you know, th this is, these are theories and no one knows for sure, but when you live with that group who are reenacting this song and dance that they say relates to their earliest times, what you see is essentially the women coming together and saying no to alpha male and inviting the other men in as long as they come in without competition and aggression in their hearts to form a society of equality. It was the solidarity of people coming together operating from a different way of being. And I think that when I look at today and the way that I'm trying to work out now how I'm going to play my role in this learning that I've got, it's rather than trying to have a revolution and confront because it's just, it's just I don't feel that's the answer it's, it's like retreating almost and just disempowering by not feeding the power I just got shivers when you said it was the women coming together and saying no it's almost like the, the whole you know the me too thing that's going on right now it's like that this is the modern well our version of it and how, how do we change by coming together, retreating and saying, no, we're going to lock these men by coming together, retreating, essentially. And at the same, it's amazing. Yeah. It strikes me that this is a message that's very timely. And certainly of all the things that I've learned on my journeys, it's the one that's resonated with me the most. You know, and it's very hard for me as a man to talk about women and what women should do and like da da da. I, it's not for me in any way to offer that other than to tell the story of what it is that I saw, tell the story of what it is that I experienced. And then as a man, what I feel, how much I appreciated that power and felt, felt a, a nourishment and a thirst for it. And it's a very, very complex thing to be bringing and I, I only ever want to do it with love and try and, and tenderness and try and, and get it right and not upset because it's it's very complex and I'm a guy, I'm a white guy from the first world nation, you know. It's, there's something there that I find to be very compelling and um, timely. And rather than it being necessarily about men and women or necessarily about hunting and gathering, it's like, what is the essence of the story that we can take? What is the essence of it that we can look at? What is that? And maybe we can find that in each of us. Maybe even if we do disseminate out into a different way of seeing ourselves, we can still find those things within us that allow us to step back and, and use those qualities that we saw so beautifully upheld by those women and go, well, actually, actually, I can do that too. It is really amazing. There are a couple of other things in terms of human connection, in terms of connection to nature as well. 
sustainability is a word that is being thrown around everywhere. And obviously, you know, you were right in the middle of groups of people who have the deepest understanding and connection with nature. What can we take from that that will really improve our environment, improve our mental health, improve our well-being? What are the, the lessons that you think we need to learn there? Well, actually, I just made a film about this. Since I left the BBC, I've been working on a film for the last few years. It came out in the UK last year and it's coming out the rest of the world soon. And in that, I look at this connection to nature. And one of the things when I go and visit the Panan, who is the egalitarian group I was telling you about in Borneo, that it dawns on me is that one of the other reasons why these people seem to be behaving in such a beautifully compassionate and connected and caring way, and they have this extraordinary, um, true connection with each other and with nature, is it dawned on me that they're meditating every day. Hunting and gathering is a form of meditation in a funny sort of way is when because I've learned to meditate and, and do it quite a lot and I've been on many retreats and I've read a lot when you pair it away I mean meditation is a very ubiquitous term that can apply in many different ways but one of the things that almost always it has at its heart is about being present and being either focused in a narrow way or in an open alert aware way but either way it's about being here and now in your body in your senses and and like experiencing what's happening and of course if you're going to go out and catch a monkey you have to be like that you can't be drifting off in your mind to another place and time and abstract thought and go hunting you just can't and likewise if you want to forage you have to be alert but you don't have to be using your attention in the same way when you are farming now you can be but you don't have to be you can put the headphones on and have a conversation and stick the pleats and the seeds in the ground and drive the tractor and whatever you want you don't need to be focused and using that same kind of attention to farm as you do when you're hunting and gathering. So one of the questions we ask in the film is like, wow, well, maybe for this majority of our time on the planet, when we were egalitarian hunter-gatherers in the tropical belt, we were, medit- we, were hun- we were hunting and gathering every day, and that had an effect on how we use our body, mind, and senses. And anyone who's been on a, like a week-long meditation retreat will tell you that the way they go in on the first day and the way they come out on the last day, they often feel very different. And one of the things that they will often tell you they feel different is that they feel more connected at the end. That's a word you'll often use. You feel connected to the oneness, to the the spiritual realm, but you'll feel more connected. That is something that, that attending to the world in a certain way brings about a difference in how we are perceiving ourselves relating to that which is around us. And those guys are doing it every day. Maybe this is one of the shifts why we see ourselves as separate to nature and above it is because we've been manipulating it for like the last 10,000 years. It's no surprise that we have created gods in our own image and think that we're above it all. And of course, what these people can tell you is you're never going to be above it all. You're only ever in it. But we've sort of outsourced and externalized all of our problems. And it's only now that we're waking up to the fact you can't be above nature. Of course we're nature. I mean, it's a ridiculous thought to think that we were going to be more powerful than nature itself. It's just madness. And maybe all of this is stemming from that moment, that the Penan, who I, I visited first with the BBC, and then I went back to visit them as they're just beginning to settle and turn to agriculture. So we look at that. It's like, this is a moment that all of us have been through. And maybe this, the world that we're living in today, even though we've got these extraordinary gifts and we're all the... The, the, the grateful 
recipients of so much beautiful technology and, and comfort and all the rest of it, but at the same time, at what cost? Yeah. And these people know that what you do to nature, you do to yourself, ultimately. Which kind of brings me to, to my next question about what they can teach us about slowing down and the value and importance of family, because that's something that you know we see disappearing as well. The speed of life and the disconnection between family. Yeah, I think um, f for family, I would extend into community. One of the greatest things I learned was the importance of community and how the, that famous phrase, it takes a community to raise a child. I mean, it, the stress I see in my dear friends trying their very hardest in our society, they're stressed and I just don't see it. I mean, there's so many things actually when you look at tribal living that are really fascinating and exemplary and often at odds with the common preconceptions we have. I think they're incredibly healthy, which again, you know, we all look at the statistics that people only, they die very young and all the rest of it. I don't think that's the case. I think they have a lot of child mortality. And if you put that into the statistics, then it brings the average age down. But actually, the people who get past a certain age live very long lives. I don't know if you've read the studies about what they call the 5-2 diet, the calorific restricted diets and stuff. Well, look them up, they're really interesting. So they're sort of like reduced calorie diets, fasting diets, essentially. And you've got studies at Harvard and Oxford and all these places now, and people who do these, these things, and lab rats and everyone, but humans too, it takes what we have in our society is probably a one in three to one in five chance of getting cancer and heart disease. That's the stats now. You'll take that, if you do this type of calorie reduced diet, which is essentially a fasting type diet, where you don't eat maybe one day, two days a week, you have a much less food. That chance of going, getting cancer and heart disease goes from one in three to one in five to something like one in 200,000, which essentially makes it statistically like it's not gonna happen. So essentially, these people that we consider to be unhealthy, they probably have no cancers and heart disease because they're all on the 5-2. I mean, every now and then they go for a day without eating. Really? Because they, they're hunter-gatherers. Is... It's really good food. It's because what happens to the cells in your body when you're only ever taking food in the whole time, your cells only stay in what they call replication mode. Whereas when you don't take in food, because you need a lot of energy to digest, when you don't take in food, your cells have a chance to stop replicating and they they go into repair mode and that just happens if you do that regularly enough cancers don't grow because your body gets a chance to repair itself that's so interesting i mean it's don't take my word for it look it up i promise you it's really good really well, good mean, research you know we're muslims and we do fast you yeah. know once a year but actually like in the islamic tradition so you're actually encouraged to fast three days a month i think that's really healthy um, and then the best fast, which very few people can do, is actually every second day. So one day you eat, one day you don't. And so... Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's based in something very wise back right. in the day. Yeah, it's I mean, like, it, it's, it really, look it up, it's really good studies coming out of reputable places saying exactly what I've just said. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just going to ask you one last question. Okay. What is next for you? Basically, it's time for me to start putting into practice all these things. So I've just bought a plot of land in Wales and I'm going to put it into trust, invite a group of people to come live with me as with, with, without me being the leader, like just as an egalitarian group and have different ideas of ownership. I Basically, I just realized I'm talking about these things 
and lots of people you know I just made a film about it and I noticed that people go yeah great Bruce it's really lovely thanks very much and then we're on to the next thing I was like you know what if I really believe this I've just got to do it so what people in the UK you're inviting them to come and you know be well, part I of mean, this like, community uh, or? yeah I mean like, at the moment um, at the moment I've already got a small gang because I don't have a lot of space but if I can make this work then I feel I make it like beautiful and amazing and we're going to love it and we're going to connect with nature and we're going to live sustainably from the space and we're going to have a very different notion of all of these things and not have to go to the factory or the office every day because we're like out in nature and foraging and all that stuff yeah. Self-sustainable. I yeah, but like especially with these different ideas of ownership and stuff, I think right. that's the key. I could just hold on to the space and have people live there, but no, I want to put it into trust, have the next generation take it, yeah, all of that. Basically, bring into my life these things that I talk about, and let's see if that can also be a part of something. We've all got to do what we can, you know. We're facing some complex times. Is there going to be a TV series that's going to come out about this? Well, the BBC are interested, but I'm. Maybe. Or I might, uh, I, if I, I could get funding, maybe I might just do it ourselves and then hold it in a different way. I imagine that you'd kind of want it to be, I don't know, sometimes when cameras are on you, it doesn't feel so organic, like you just want it to happen and Absolutely. then maybe bring in cameras when it actually works. Yeah, no, I, think, I mean, it's so, we've talked about this a lot. Obviously, the people that I'm wanting to live with, I'm very happy to say nearly all of them have said, absolutely, over my dead body, will there be any cameras there? So obviously, I've found the right people. Because, <laughs> like, if you go the other way, that's why they don't work. You know, it's like, that's why we all believe in Lord of the Flies, is because we're all <laughs> feeding ourselves the same old story. Right. You know, so, like, clearly, if it's about a collective vision and not an individual view, then there is a much greater chance. And the people that I'm talking to, we do share a same collective vision that isn't about us and our own happiness and our own well-being and our own comfort. It's about the future generations, it's about nature, it's about all that. So if we can buy into the bigger picture and we can write a, like a manifesto that holds all that and the, all the conflict resolution and the decision making and the healing, all of those wow, aspects. Yeah, do no, everything. No, yeah, no, we're going to put it all together and if we can make that work, then that's a template. I'm so excited to see what happens. <laughs> so have I. I, I, we've got a long way to go. I, I've only just bought this plot of land. It's tiny. You know, we could do with more space. We How many do... people are you thinking about? I mean, at the moment it's tiny because I didn't have a lot of cash. So it's it's five families, you know. But um, but even then, it's in a small space. We don't mind. We're all going to have a tiny little space each to grow our families and, and all the rest of it. But that's okay. It's the idea and it's making it work and then having that as... It's just a story, you know. If that can work as a template, we're online, it can be... This is your story now. It's not my story. It's not my story. This is a story that I've had the great privilege, the great privilege to have touched upon. It's all of our story. It's all of our story. And I just I happen to be the guy that's bridged something very, very, very special at a time when it's almost left the planet. And here we are. It's like the fingers touching on the Sistine Chapel wall, it's like we're just, I, we're, I'm man just touching our past and maybe that can be brought into today. Yeah, but it's not my story, it's all of us. Bruce Perry, pleasure. Well, what a, what a story. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you thank for you so allowing much. me to go there. I'm really happy to share it. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Pulse 95. It's Pulse 95.